Our text is 2 Thessalonians, chapter 3, verses 6 through 15. 2 Thessalonians 3, I'll start reading at verse 6. But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It is life and health. It is strength to our bones. We disobey it uh, to our peril. So we pray, Lord, give us wisdom and give us a resolve to be obedient to you. We give you thanks now for this, your word, for the power of the Holy Spirit at work in our hearts and minds, even in our society, to bring it to pass. We thank you for it. In Christ's name, amen. Didn't want to get Gary's cooties. He normally switches it for me. He's just tricking me now. All righty. I want to begin with an illustration. I have a friend who I've worked with now for three years. When we first began working together, we uh, get to know one another. I, I meet with them every month. And at first, and I am pretty open about my Christianity, and it just kind of comes out. It's, it's going to come out. You really have to work to try to contain it if that's what you want to do. So I... It's a work environment, so you have to be careful, but I normally don't try to contain it a whole lot. I test people. You test the waters, so to speak. Well, this fellow's waters were pretty, pretty rough. He didn't like hearing me sharing anything about Christ. And so what he would do is test me back. He'd just start swearing and, and just maligning Christianity. And I'd just sit there and, you know, smile. He just, he just really knew he couldn't get me after that. So we, I wore him down, I think. And now he's pretty respectful, actually, and we really enjoy one another's company. I like him a lot. Uh, unbeliever, you know, he's lost as the day is long, as they say. Uh, but he knows I want his soul. So he, he's, he's been on guard since pretty much the time we became friends. But... Uh, I think it was just last week, I happened to mention Micah, and Micah's working with us now. He's a couple floors up from us, but he's at the same company. And uh, so I mentioned the courtship and how it's culminating, and now they're engaged, and they're going to be wed. And, 
And he just got this little grin on his face, and he was just very honest. He said, you know, he said, I have never heard anybody use the term courtship as you're using it. I just, I just never heard it. All you, you might see it in an old movie or something, but not someone that's actually doing it. And I just smiled in return, and I said, well, I said, it's what we're doing. I said, you know, not everybody does it, but I said, in our church, a lot of people have been doing it recently, and it's working. So it was heartening to see him be willing to talk to me about it because use that term in your normal everyday language at your work or with your friends. Uh, it's not something that comes up every day. So people might politely ignore it. They might just presume, oh, you mean dating. That's your term for dating. But you don't want to change it. At first, when I first started talking to people a few years ago about courtship, I was tempted to change it, just alter it, make it kind of fit in with what they were expecting. But then I began to think, no, no, let's just tell it what it is. And uh, it's, been, it's been wonderful. He's the first one that's kind of asked me about it. I'm sure a lot of the others just roll their eyes invisibly and, and think, oh, no, what are you doing? But I wanted to begin with that illustration because it gets me to where I want to read this. And here I'm going to go to Jeremiah 6. And I'm going to start reading at verse 16. 616, thus says the Lord, stand in the ways and see and ask for the old paths where the good way is and walk in it. Then you will find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. Also, I set watchmen over you saying, listen to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, we will not listen. Therefore, hear, you nations, and know, O congregation, what is among them. Hear, O earth, behold, I will certainly bring calamity on this people, the fruit of their thoughts, because they have not heeded my words nor my law, but rejected it. For what purpose to me come frankincense from Sheba and sweet cane from a far country? Your burnt offerings are not acceptable, nor your sacrifices sweet to me. He mentions in the very first verse there that I read, verse 16, that we are to return to the old paths, ask for the old paths where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. And they say, we will, we will not walk in it. I don't know what's happening. So now we too, just as of old, have abandoned the old paths. Our culture has largely abandoned the old path. Yet, you don't really fully abandon it, there is a counterfeit or a substitute that's put in its place. So for instance, parents teaching children was the norm for centuries, for millennia. Yet, now we have switched to where the government is teaching our schools. We think that it's just an alteration of who's doing the teaching, but what we don't realize fully is that it's not just that. It has also changed what is being taught. Courtship, which implies parental involvement in a relationship between young people, uh, has been replaced by dating, where there is no presence of any of the parents. About all the dad will say is, have her back by 11, like he's checking out a book or something. There is no uh, 
overt concern over what exactly you're going to do, where are you going to go, when are you going to be back. Sexual abstinence until marriage has been replaced by safe sex training. And so even Christian parents don't view that as inherently wrong or even risky at times. Their children are in public school. They're getting trained in this. So see, they think it's just teaching facts. That's all it is, teaching facts. But no, it's more than that. It's far more than that. It's teaching a culture. It's teaching a culture that this is acceptable. This is what you're going to do. This is how you're going to do it. And this is how you're going to remain safe doing it. And so marriage has been replaced by a try-before-you-buy program known as Living Together. And whenever I've talked to people who say they're Christians who practice this, they always say, well, how will you know whether you're compatible? It's just ridiculous. How did people for millennia know they were compatible when they practiced courtship and marriage and, and uh, betrothal and they didn't practice uh, sex until marriage? Uh, those are all old paths that have been abandoned by our culture. And yet what we have to acknowledge is that Christianity, Christian culture, follows after these trends and practices. It might not be immediate, but it is eventual. Christians largely follow after the popular culture, and right now that road is leading straight to hell. Now, the reason I bring that up in the context of Thessalonians, you'll get to in a minute, but I want to return to Thessalonians. Now, we've only got a few chapters here. Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians, and then he wrote 2 Thessalonians, and I want to give you kind of a thumbnail sketch of 1 Thessalonians. And uh, let me turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. At verse 1, Paul writes, Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, now, he's talking about the fact that he's been meaning to get back to Thessalonica, but Satan has been preventing it. And so there's something going on here. But he said, when we could no longer adore it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone and send Timothy, our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith. Now, obviously, Paul had concerns about this little church in Thessalonica. He wants to check on them. He keeps getting prevented from doing so. And so he dispatches Timothy to do that. In verse 6, but now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us as we also to see you, therefore. Now, he's already commended their faith in chapters 1, 2, and now he's transitioning in 3. And when he gets to 4 and 5, he brings some mild rebuke. Remember, we're in a first letter that he's written to the Thessalonians. And I just want to again hit the highlights. In chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, he talks about how you ought to walk and to please God. In verses 3 through 8, it's about abstention from sexual morality. That had been practiced, and they were concerned that it still was being practiced. Verses 9 and 10, brotherly love, have brotherly love for one another. And verse 11a and b, I'm going to separate them out. In 11a, he says that he wants them to lead a quiet life and mind your own business. This is what some uh, capitalist uh, tongue-in-cheek say is, is support of us founding our own businesses, is that Paul advocated it, that you're supposed to have a business in order to mind it. But you know what he's talking about. You know he's talking about mind your own business, don't be a busybody. So then the second part, work with your own hands as we commanded you, as we commanded you. So again, Paul, when he was present with them, could see their culture. 
He could see the weakness of their culture when contrasted with where he wanted them to be. And so he had already talked to them about this. Troublemaking and laziness were issues that he'd seen right from the get-go in Thessalonica. Then you move into chapter 5, and in verses 12 and 14, we see in 12, they're to honor their church leaders. So he might have sensed that they might challenge their church leaders. And then in verse 14, to warn those that are unruly. So in other words, don't just allow it to go on. Resolve it. And so now Timothy has been sent. So he was there, founded the church. He's concerned about them. He hasn't been able to get back. He sends Timothy. And now he sends this. So he's now had Timothy probably reaffirm that some of these are still concerns. The concerns he'd had when he was there have been borne out, and he wants them to continue to work on them. Don't ignore my letter. Don't ignore my concerns. So now we have the second letter. So in the second letter, in chapter 2, it's, it's uh, shorter. It's three chapters instead of five. But in chapter 2, he encourages them to be patient. Some of them have become kind of obsessed with when is all this that you're talking about going to happen. They're obsessed about when the great uh, tribulation is going to come upon the, upon the whole Roman Empire. He tells them it's not yet come. And then he tells them about troublemakers, busybodies, exploiters. He warns them against that. So now, let's go specifically to the text that we have for today and go into it in a little bit more detail concerning this shunning. So in verse 6, we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. Now, I want you to focus on these words as I repeat them. We command you. This is not subtle. This is very, very blunt, and it's very strong. But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul does not, we know he does not act in his own accord, but yet he doesn't always bring Christ's name, the big guns out, to affirm what it is that he's saying. But he says, we command you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. What he's saying is serious, and he's about to address what he considers a very serious problem. We command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. Disorderly. Command is a military term. It's used in the military to command someone. And disorderly is when someone in your command is getting out of line. They're rebelling against your authority. You, they're being disorderly, disrespectful, disobedient. So now, then he goes on to say, For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you. So in other words, they were not modeling rebellion. They were not modeling this type of behavior. So you should do what we did when we were with you. Look after how we did it. Do that. Okay. When we were with you, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. In verse 10, he says this. For even when we were with you, we commanded you to do this. If anyone will not work, work, neither shall he eat. There was the initial planting of the church. There was the feedback from Timothy in the, at the first letter that was responded to. And now we've got this third letter. So see, they've heard more. And all of this has persisted. All of this, I believe, has probably gotten worse. These people who want to just sit around have gotten worse. They're affecting the church. So none of the advice has changed. It's just gotten stronger and stronger and stronger. 
as these people have not responded to rebuke, have not responded to good rule, have not responded to the wisdom that Paul had given them. Now these unresponsive busybodies in verse 11, for we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. So they are being directly addressed. This is the only point where they are being specifically addressed. Why are they not being addressed through the whole letter? Well, you don't write the letter to the, to the malcontents. You write it to the people that are attempting to hold the malcontents accountable. So all he's giving them is a simple command. You're in the wrong. Straighten up. That's what he tells them. And he has it told them. Now, you know that often these letters are read in the church. The apostle writes a letter, they receive the letter, and then at the next church gathering, they read the letter. So these people are present. But I want you to notice something. Now, those who are such, we command and exhort. He doesn't name names. Surely he knows who they are. He knows who they are. But again, I've heard this phrase, and I really like it, praise publicly, rebuke privately. So if you're trying to correct someone's behavior, you go to them privately and you correct them. It's been escalated now. They're essentially being rebuked publicly, but anonymously. The letter is pretty much saying, you know who you are, because we've talked to you about this before. You know you're a troublemaker. Stop it. And then in verse 14, and if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. Note that person. Do not keep company with him. So now that is difficult advice to give and it is difficult advice to ensure is taken and obeyed and it would be easy for people in the church to disregard it, to not be willing to obey the dire this direction. I mean, this is clear direction. You are not to have fellowship with that person. They're a malcontent. They will not uh, respond to rebuke properly. Give them an audience for what it is that they're doing. When I was a child, uh, 12, 13, 14, I don't know, I bought a lot of books. One of the books I remember reading was a big, thick book on day-to-day -day cop life in the big city. It was, I think it was New York City. It was very boring. It was not an exciting book. I, I would have bought an exciting book if I had known that this one was boring, but I read it anyway. You know, you bought the book. I felt obligated. And uh, yet, it was very real, very realistic, just talking about day-to-day -day life of these, these policemen. And one of the things that they stressed repeatedly uh, in several vignettes throughout the book was that when a policeman goes into a domestic quarrel situation, they've been called out, the man is beating the woman. When they go in there and that man starts giving them grief and they have to start wrestling with them, they better watch the woman because she's going to be on their backs. She, she, she wants the police to come, wants to help, wants her husband or, or boyfriend to stop beating her up. But if she feels that the boyfriend is now getting hit, she will attack the policeman. It's quite common in domestic situations. It seems odd. It seems bizarre. But that's the way it is. And the police learn, all police learn, that you better watch the woman. 
who's been, uh, you've been caught in this situation. You, you don't put yourself in a position where you're vulnerable to her attack. So see, the reason I bring that up is that advice is difficult. Even if it's for the good of the church, Paul is saying, do this, don't do that. As a body, we're told to shun someone. We're told to not fellowship with them, to withdraw from them. But they are still in the body. Do not count them as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So see, this is being done for that person's good. It's being done for the good of the church and the good of that individual. But some people are going to resist that direction from the leadership of the church. You can't tell me who I can and cannot talk to. You can't tell me who I can and cannot have in my home. It just, as soon as people are told, you, you, this is not wise, don't do this, oh, I'm going to do it just to spite you. So see, when you have someone in the church that could be very friendly, very well-loved, it's hard to bring rebuke into their life to this degree. Where they're persisting in sin, it's hard to bring the church to bear on them because they like the person. They like them a lot. Years ago, as a young elder in the PCA, I remember we were about to go to a presbytery meeting, and Glenn Durham was the associate pastor at that point, and we were heading off, and uh, filling, uh, Glenn started telling me about an issue that, was being, that the presbytery was facing, and it had to do with two men. And the way Glenn put it very succinctly was, one man is loved by everybody in the presbytery. He's a delight to be with. Everybody likes him. But there are some concerns we have about his life, about his ministry. The other man is despised by every other man in the presbytery. He's just obnoxious. Everybody hates him. And so we, and so I, it was just, and, and, and then, you know, Phil, Phil was like, yeah, that pretty much sums it up, you know. I don't think Phil would have been as blunt. But so then we drive off, we attend the meetings, and I think it took more than one presbytery for us to work through these issues. But what is amazing about that is that, the, oh, we were so patient with the man that everybody loved. I mean, he was just a very charismatic man, but he would not do what it was the presbytery wanted him to do. He would not quit this ministry that he had, was that, which everybody deemed to be too liberal. And uh, so he chose to leave. And everybody was sad to see him go. The man who everybody really didn't like repented of what he was involved in, in tears. It, what happened was exactly what is meant to happen. You're purifying the body. If you'd have taken a vote of all the other elders that attended that presbytery, let's keep the first guy, let's get rid of the second guy. It's just that simple. We love him. We don't like this guy at all. But that isn't the way God worked it out. So see, we must abide by God's way of doing things to reach God's result. This man was so loved, but he was refusing to submit to God's word and to the wisdom of his brothers. Whereas this man in tears did so. It was just a beautiful illustration of, of good coming out of a situation that you'd have never, never expected in a million years. But when you do it God's way, he can bring about these miracles. Now, I've read to you from 2 Thessalonians 3. The phrases were, withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and do not keep company with him. Both of those statements were in our text. 
You might think, well, okay, that's kind of unique. This is only one place that we're told to do this. But no, there are other places. Let me read a few for you. The first one I'll read to you is from Romans 16, verse 17. This is the last chapter of Romans. Paul is wrapping up this letter to the Romans. The Roman church had not attended yet. And he says this, Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned, and avoid them. So we are told to avoid those that undermine solid doctrine. And then in Titus, Titus chapter 3, verse 10, we read this. I'll start at verse 9. But avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. And I have an illustration here related to this one. The challenge here, of course, is how to apply these things consistently across all cases. That's a huge challenge. And so my level of what I consider a divisive man might be different than yours. The number of times I'm interacting with him might be different than yours. So recently, I and a few elders were in an engagement with a fellow who two of us began to think this fellow is just being divisive. But the third elder in our company kept dialoguing with him very graciously. And the other fellow was gracious. He was, not, he was divisive, in my opinion, but he was gracious. And so the, the two of us talked to the other fellow and said, we don't know how you have the patience to deal with this. I mean, why do you put up with this? The fellow is just going to argue you to the moon and back. He just seems to devote all this time to this argument. And the third fellow just said, well, as long as he's being gracious, I really feel I can be gracious in response and try to address all of his concerns. If it leads to the point where he's no longer being gracious or there's no longer any new territory to cover, then I can abandon it. But see, that's just an illustration where we all kind of have our own definitions for just how divisive is divisive enough to consider it the first and second admonition. Let me take you to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse, uh, starting at verse 9. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of this world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. This is a clear proof text for judging. And so when people go to Matthew, do not judge, uh, do not judge that you be not judged, uh, take them here. This is, we Christians are to judge one another. It's our jobs. We need to be fair. We need to use the same standard against them as well as ourselves. But yet, we are commanded to judge one another because we have to determine whether we can rightfully fellowship with this person who claims to be a brother but whose behavior doesn't bear that out. So we're not to keep company with immoral, self-professing Christians. 
He says, put away from yourselves the evil person. Now, this right here in, in 1 Corinthians 5 is interesting. There are two interesting aspects of this. So let me bring up the first one. He makes a clarification, and the clarification has to do with we're not to keep company with these immoral, self-professing Christians. We are to have higher expectations of believers than we do of unbelievers. That is obvious, but it has teeth. It means that I can have all the unbelievers on earth come to my house, sit at my table. But if they profess to believe the same as I do, and I take them to the word and they refuse to accept it, that's now ended. I don't have fellowship with that person now. God ended it by giving me this direction. Why? Because otherwise you're playing with fire. There's a second thing here that I want to point out. In verse 13, uh, 1 Corinthians 5, 13, but those who are outside God judges, therefore put away from yourselves the evil person. Your Bible probably has it shown as a quote. That quote is from the Old Testament. That quote is from Deuteronomy. And do you know what they did when they put away the evil person? They killed them. They're speaking of people who had sacrificed to pagan gods. So see, in the Old Testament, God had the Jewish nation dealing with it in this way. Put away the evil person. Every time it was mentioned, they're executed, executed, executed. But in this context, we are, in a sense, executing them. They are dead to us as that phrase goes that many people joke about. Unless that person repents, unless that person becomes open to the word of God, having bearing in their life, they're dead to us. We ought not be having them in our homes. They ought not be our best friends. Like I can call this fellow at work, blatant unbeliever, a good friend of mine. I can't have such a good friend who says they're a believer, but disobeys God right and left. God's word closes that door to me. So now, I gave you four examples, 2 Thessalonians 3, Romans 16, Titus 3, 1 Corinthians 5. Now, this is just mean old Paul. Everybody knows Paul is mean. Everybody knows he didn't get along with anybody, right? He was just really hard-hearted. So see, how about John? John was so loving. John was Jesus' favorite. Just like I told Gary and Phil, I'm Jesus' favorite amongst the elders. So see, let's go to 2 John, the second letter of John, and verse 9. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house nor greet him, for he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. And I know... I've heard this applied to Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. We have to be careful. These people say they're believers. They say they know the God we know. They say they love the God we know, but we know them to be a cult. We know them to have a very different doctrine of Christ and God than we do. Therefore, we ought not build friendships with such people. There is a degree, of course, to which we are to reach out to all people. What I'm talking about, though, is going beyond that. Our interaction with such people must be very defined. As long as they do not accept that you don't regard them as a Christian, if they're going to fight against that, but I am a Christian, you can't be friends with them. 
And that's why when I meet people who I consider culturally Christian, and we end up dialoguing about the Word, and if they're living in sin, living in disobedience to this Word, I don't accept them as a Christian, and I tell them that. You're not a Christian like God's, defined, God, God's Word defines Christians. I just want you to know that. So I don't see you as getting to heaven the way you live. Because you don't know the God I know. You don't know the Christ I know. Because the people I know that are going to heaven love God's Word. And they, it breaks their heart when they're out of conformity with God's Word. But you, you treat it like it's a buffet. I could just take from here and, and leave it there. That's not the way God's Word works. So that's how the Apostle John dealt with it too. So now, I want to summarize what I've described in all these texts. Shunning. I want to summarize shunning for you. First, I have three questions I want to ask. What behaviors do people exhibit that warrant us shunning them scripturally? So these are people that claim to be Christians yet consistently behave in unchristian ways without repentance. Disorderly, lazy, busybodies or gossips, disobedient or rebellious, divisive, offensive, self-serving, sexually immoral, covetous, idolatrous, revilers, drunkards, extortioners, disputatious, legalists. Fifteen terms Paul and John use to describe these people. These are behaviors that are exhibited by people that say they believe in the same God we do, but don't, because they do stuff like this without repentance. So, second question. What are the specific ways, then, shunning is to be employed with such people? Admonish him as a brother. Withdraw from him. Do not support him. Do not accompany him. Avoid him. Do not eat with him. Reject him. Do not receive him into your home. Do not even greet him. It's so unchristian, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's what people think. This is so unchristian. How can all this be in the Christian Bible? That's not my God. Well, you, I agree with you. <laughs> your God is different than what I'm describing then. Your God is a figment of your imagination, a product of our culture. It's not the God of the Bible. Third question. What are the various goals stated, the reasons given for why God wants us to do this? Do not grow weary in doing good. In other words, if we tolerate this type of thing, it weakens us all. We then do not want to do good to others because it's just the, the largesse of the church that's being squandered on all these people that are eating it up. It's the locusts. Do not grow weary in doing good. That he may be ashamed. It brings shame upon that person who is being shunned. The time spent with these people is unprofitable and useless. And we are then sharing in his evil deeds. So we're given four reasons that we must behave this way with them. It's difficult for us to behave this way. It's difficult for us as elders to try and ensure that you all will accept that type of direction. To say, this is from the God, the word, God's word. This person in our church who's a member has been in unrepentant sin and is fighting with us. We want you to shun them. What you're saying is archaic, right? I mean, that's, that's kind of what our knee-jerk reaction is. 
What are you talking about? This is 2016. The Christian church just doesn't behave that way. Nor does the Christian church court people, right? Right? I mean, these are the old paths. These are what we need to return to. These are God's prescriptions for how we should live good, godly lives. So now, why is it not done? And I believe it's not done because people are so upset by it. Not necessarily the people that you're bringing rebuke to. Of course, they're going to be upset. I mean, they're caught in sin. Anybody accused of sin gets upset with you for pointing it out to them. It's just the nature of sin. Sin is like an evil little demon that lives in us. And as soon as it comes under attack, it starts attacking us back. That's what that little demon of sin inside you wants. Protect me. Protect me. And so when we're caught up in sin and slave to it, we don't want it to die. They employ our arms and our mind and our thoughts and our tongues to defend it. Defend the sin that's in you. They're the evil one. They shouldn't be trying to kill me. Save me. Save me. That's what your flesh does. It cries out to be saved from the onslaught of sanctification from the Holy Spirit. So, I believe you can agree, if you do any Google search whatsoever, that enlightened Christians in our day do not shun, nor do they appreciate those that shun. Search the web and you see it. But... I haven't seen a one of them that wrestles with the scriptures I gave you. Why? Why don't they feel they have to wrestle with those scriptures? Why? Because they're at a buffet. I don't want that. I don't like spinach. I'm not going to eat spinach. Take it away. Now, there are difficulties with shunning, obviously. I mean, if it was easy, everybody would do it, right? It's difficult to do effectively because we ourselves sin. It's just like Christ's admonition about getting the log out of your own eye before you get the speck out of your brother's eye. In order to do that effectively, we have to be living righteously. We have to be pursuing godliness. And yet, sometimes, churches that are attempting to practice shunning are pretty badly run. They're run by some pope as opposed to a pastor who is there for the good of the congregation. It's run by some individual with an iron fist. So I believe, though, everybody believes in shunning. Even all these, these uh, uh, mushy Christians that are writing about uh, how bad shunning is out on the web. And you know what they do? They give people the silent treatment or the cold shoulder. See, that's just shunning. But it's shunning not in accordance with God's uh, way, but your own way. I'm going to give you the silent treatment because you did something that offended me, and I'm not going to tell you what it was. You should know. If I told you what it was, then it might lead to us making a resolution. But no, no, I can't tell you what it was because I'm too angry to discuss it with you. All I want is vengeance. All I want is to dispense with you for now. I don't want to see you. So see, everybody believes in shunning. They just believe in a sinful type of shunning. I also believe that, especially in our age, in modern-day America, we're so fiercely independent. All of us have been affected with this independent-mindedness that influences our culture. 
we are not like this communal culture that existed in Israel of that day. Not in any way, I think. We're, we're so different. But we're trying to foster that in the church. We want, we just talked about it in the uh, Kayla's vows. We want people to hold us accountable. Uh, yesterday with William's speech, if you see me misusing my house, tell me I'm misusing my house. This is not my house. This is God's house. We say the same thing here. This is God's house. These are God's people. We are here to please him, not ourselves. When I was doing a search, it's really difficult to find uh, good examples biblically, but uh, I found a, a, an example online, and it was concerning a young man who was active in Mars Hill Church, that humongous church out in Seattle. And back in 2012, he was actually engaged to, one of the el- uh, to an elder there, one of the daughters of an elder, and he was caught out in sin. He was cheating with another girl, having sex with another girl that was not his fiancée. And so he was rebuked by the elders, and he was refusing to repent of this, and so he was shunned. The, the elders sent out a note to the congregation saying, this is what happened, this is what we've done, this is what we want you to do. Well, of course, this was very offensive to this man, and he had friends in the church, and he was able to kind of mount up this, this uh, outraged defense of himself. Then it was discovered that he and the uh, elder's daughter were already sleeping together as well. And so that was in sin, and then he's committing sin and infidelity with this other girl. But then it's sad, because then within a couple of years, the whole Mark Driscoll thing falls, and uh, I don't really know the details of that. I mean, Mark Driscoll was a pretty fiery guy. He made a lot of mistakes. He would admit them. But uh, yet, here you had a good example, in my opinion, of a church that was trying to bring biblical shunning properly to bear upon a young man in their midst who was fighting against the church, saying, I am not going to submit to your authority concerning this morality. You say I signed a a covenant, but I don't see it. I don't don't recognize it. He he attributed it as kind of like a software ELA, you know, a license agreement with software. So, uh, and I know you all read those. I remember Josiah Cruz asking to us about that. It's like 150 pages, you know, and he wants to read this thing to, out of good conscience. I'm like, well, Josiah, I appreciate the thought, but I don't know. I, I mean, I, I click, 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 you know, you scroll down to the bottom, check the box, hit OK. You know, you're on to the next, what you want to use the software for. And so if people have conscience issues about reading that, I think maybe you can found a business that reads it for other people and, and then gives you the Reader's Digest versions of those things. So now, There is shame in shunning, I agree, and that's why the title of the sermon is titled Shunning for Shame. But see, those that support shunning and those that oppose shunning can both agree that there's shame involved. Those that oppose shunning say that the shame is on the part of those that try to hold other people accountable by shunning them. Biblically, you're wrong. They have no biblical support for that other than to go over here to these texts and say, see, Jesus tells us to be loving and nice and kind. And you might point those five verses out to them, and they say, oh, that's, that's Paul. We all know that he's pretty rough around the edges. So you have to abide by what Jesus says, not by what Paul says. Some on the Internet obviously proclaim that. They're kind of like red-letter Christians. They only pretty much believe what Jesus said, and they ignore everything else. But Jesus said some hard stuff, too, that I think they'd have a problem with. So see, then there are those that are attempting to shine and bring shame upon that person. And that's exactly what our text says. If anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person, do not keep company with him, that he may be 
ashamed. This young man at Mars Hill just left the church, of course. I'm out of here. You people are just a bunch of legalistic morons anyway. I'm going to go where I can be free, free to sin. Paul clearly advocated shame as a goal in shunning. He said, do not keep company with them that he may be ashamed, and yet do not count him as an enemy. Admonish him as a brother. So see, it begins with admonishment. It evolves to the point where you're having to endure the shunning, though. Everybody does. It's painful for everybody, right? Like I said, if it was easy, you would all do it. But it's hard. It's painful. Especially upon those that are closest to that person, that now the uh, leadership is saying they must be shunned. You can't tell me what to do. You're wrong anyway. I want to take you back to Jeremiah 6. We read that at the beginning. I read you verses 16 through 20. I want to take you to verse 10 and read you up to 15. To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Indeed, their ear is uncircumcised, and they cannot give heed. Behold, the word of the Lord is a reproach to them. They have no delight in it. Therefore, I am full of the fury of the Lord. I am weary of holding it in. I will pour it out on the children outside and on the assembly of young men together. For even the husband shall be taken with the wife, the aged with him who is full of days, and their houses shall be turned over to others, fields and wives together. For I will stretch out my hand against the inhabitants of the land, says the Lord. Because from the least of them, even to the greatest of them, everyone is given to covetousness. And from the prophet, even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. They have also healed the hurt of my people slightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? No. They were not at all ashamed, nor did they know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time I punish them, they shall be cast down, says the Lord. So let us not be like those who have forgotten how to blush. I know Phil has used that illustration before. Uh, we must return to the old paths that Scripture requires we follow. Even if it seems culturally uphill all the way, and we have uncomfortable conversations with people that we bring up the term courtship with or whatever shunning with. But we must shun the rebellious such that they will hear the voice of God. They will likely flee our church. That is a logical and likely outcome, especially in our day and age. It's, you know, in this time, there were such smaller communities, and these people were pariahs in their communities then. But here they could just go to any one of a number of other churches that will gladly accept them. That's their call. What we want to be is obedient to the Lord. So we must honor God above ourselves and above such people. Father, we thank you for your kindness. Your word is a light to our paths. And yet, Lord, too often we are not on the path. We don't even need the light that you're trying to shine for us because we're so far out in the woods that we need to find our way back to the path. So we pray, Lord, please have your Holy Spirit lead us, guide us, give us courage, give us determination to do what's right, to not care what the world has to say in response to this if they are opposing you and your word. 
We thank you, Lord, for your kindness, for your presence, and for the power of your Holy Spirit at work in us and at work in this world to conform it, to conform us to the image of your Son and to restore creation to its former glory. We give you thanks in Christ's name. Amen.